Romans 6, starting in verse 12. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Grateful this morning that uh, I can be in the pulpit here and share with you and grateful for the one who stood in for me for these five weeks. Uh, we, Some of you may have not heard this, but we encountered COVID in our own family and so I was quarantined for a bit and then I was in isolation for a bit as I had it and uh, that happened really quickly about five weeks ago and Pastor Jason um, obviously had to step in in just a couple of days notice there when it first happened and then we made the decision that because of one of the Sundays in the middle of that we had already planned to be gone that he would walk through that series in First John with us and actually what I'm going to talk about today it, it fits in one place in it the whole idea of continuing on in sin that whole concept that John talks about in First John, and we'll reference that a bit, but I'm grateful for his being willing to do that. And in this time that I have been in and out of the office, um, a few weeks ago, I ran across a quote from C.S. Lewis, which I think we have ready to put on the screen this morning. I want you just to read that for a moment, just to let it sink in. Let me read it to you, and then you, you just let it mull over in your own heart a bit. Each day... We are becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. It's a strong statement. And I've been thinking a lot about it as it sat on my desk in these days. In fact, when I first saw it, I clipped it thinking that would be a good way to enter back into Romans chapter 6. Doesn't leave much gray area, does it, in the middle? creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. I think that's a true statement. It's a strong statement. Probably needs some wisdom and discretion of who and when you share it. But it is true. It is true. It especially fits where we're at in Romans chapter 6. Now, one of the things that causes and gives us pause in a statement like that is we think we we know some people who are really nice people. They're nicer than I am, but they're unbelievers. How does that fit? You really, that's the dichotomy. You understand that here, don't you? Those who are becoming creatures of splendid glory are those in Christ. Those who are becoming specimens of unthinkable horror are those that are in Adam and remain in Adam. That's that's where the split happens. That's what Romans 5 and 6 is about. But we think, 
I know some people who are really nice people. Can I, can I really believe that statement? Let me take you where my mind has taken me in these days as I've thought about that. The real issue, I think, here of when you start to see it is when you bump up against what gives those really nice people life. It's when you bump into that and you bump them regarding that. Maybe, maybe intentionally, if God gives you wisdom of how to deal with them, but, but most often probably you, you didn't even intend to do it. You just bumped into them. And what I mean by that is in the issue of what gives them life. When you, when you press against what gives them life, that's where you begin to see something else begin to bubble out. Some may control it better than others, but it bubbles out. When they are looking And they are, that's a definition of those in Adam. They are looking for something other than Christ, the second Adam, to give them life. And when you bump it and you challenge it, intentionally or unintentionally, you start to see something begin to happen. I've had that happen in my own life. I I laid on my living room floor a long time ago with chills up and down my spine as a result of a late night call to somebody that I had bumped into like that. A very nice person. A really nice person. I would have said in many regards. But oh, when I bumped that. Now, I think it's important to say that that can even happen to Christians. In other words, when, when we functionally start to operate in realms of looking to other things to give us life rather than Christ, which I think is a definition of sin, we start to look to other things to give us what only God can give us. Sin enters into that. And Christians, we've talked about that. Romans chapter 6 makes it plain. Christians still deal with sin. And so there are times when we can functionally live there as unbelievers, or as believers, those in Christ. The difference is we don't stay there. The definition of one who is in Adam is that they stay there unless they move to Christ, but they stay there. They get entrenched in that, and, and as they hold on to that, that's the ultimate means to destruction. That's what happens as they hold on to that. Don't let go of that. Ever let go of that. They move to a creature of unthinkable horror as we stretch it out to eternity future. Those are true. That is a true statement. It is true. C.S. Lewis was right, and it is a summation of what we have been in in Romans chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's a good way to enter back into it. Uh, we are either in Adam or we are in Christ. There is no gray area between that. This morning, as you said here, you are in one or the other. 
No one's in the middle. No one's in the middle. And it determines, as I said, one of two trajectories, ultimately, which are defined here. Now, the encouraging thing, I hope this morning, for us, I hope that it's encouraging to you that we are, God has intercepted us, that we might be, that we might be a creature of splendid glory. That is where the trajectory of all that are in Christ, and that that would give you hope. That would give you hope this morning, incredible hope that that's what God has saved you for and what he's going to push you toward continually as a believer. Even in the midst of maybe a sin that comes to your mind this morning that you may have committed this week. That's where God intends to take his people. So my goal this morning is not to discourage you, but to encourage you with that statement. It should be a statement of great encouragement. That's where we're headed. And it is, it is why the question of Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, which we talked about a long time ago, but continue to come back to as we walk through Romans chapter 6, it's why it is both predictable, that question, and unthinkable. Both. Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's all by grace through faith, not of works, through no merit of our own, should we just keep on sinning that grace can abound? And for Paul, he wasn't surprised that he got that question. In fact, it was an affirmation that he was sharing the gospel correctly because all of that is true. It is by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. All of that is true. And so the logical place that a that an unredeemed mind will take that is the question. But it also to Paul was unthinkable. And it was unthinkable because of the statement, not because Paul knew that statement, but because he knew that reality. Each day, people in Christ are becoming creatures of splendid glory. We are changed, the scripture says, from one degree of glory to another in this journey of faith. That's the trajectory for all that are in Christ. It is the trajectory. Grace does reign over the life of believers. There's a reign of grace. And when we are in Christ, that reign reigns in us and pushes us on that road. It's what the writer of Hebrews meant in chapter 10 and verse 14. We've referenced this text a lot, but there the writer of the Hebrews says, by a single offering, he, God, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, who are being made creatures more and more of splendid glory. If you really want to read, it says, by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being perfected. We are perfect by the perfect righteousness of another, and yet we also are being made perfect. We are being sanctified. So both justification and sanctification, two distinct works of God, but they both begin when we come to life in Christ. 
That's again what Romans chapter 6 is about. It's what Paul's pastoral heart resonated with as he shared and wrote to the Roman church. Paul was pushing back against antinomianism, lawlessness, the question that we see here. That, that there, in fact, could be somebody who believes that they have come under the reign of grace but have no concern for righteousness. That can't happen because God's work does both. It, it gives us a righteousness, but it begins to plant in us a desire for righteousness. To pursue righteousness in our lives to fight against sin in our lives, perfectly no. We've, we've said that enough. I hope you've heard that here for the first time. I say it again, not perfectly, but a different trajectory begins to happen in our lives. And if there's no concern for righteous living in one who professes to have the righteousness of Christ, they haven't come to life. Now, maybe... That, that desire can grow and expand and get bigger, but there has to be the seed of that there. There must for life. When life comes, that's what happens. So Paul was pushing back against this lawless idea that we should sin more so that grace can abound. Again, not surprised by that, but certainly not giving in to that at all. And the second thing Paul was attempting was to, to paint a true picture, I think, in Romans chapter 6 and 7. We're going we're to move to 7. We'll see more of that picture. But in those texts, try to paint a true picture of what it is to be in Christ, what it looks like, how it's lived out. Um, some things that we've talked about that were brought from death to life. This text brings it again. If you look down in verse... Um, 13, the latter part of that verse, let me read the whole thing. It says, do not present yourselves as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Life has come if we're in Christ. Life has come. The life of God has been implanted into our lives. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in the life of a believer, and he's the one who brings us to life and sustains that life in us and pushes us pushes us down that trajectory of becoming a specimen of splendid glory. He will not settle for anything else. He will continue to push us in that trajectory if we're in Christ. And at the same time, we have said, and Paul would, would say that there does remain indwelling sin that wants to thwart that effort in our lives. There's a lifelong battle with indwelling sin in the life of a Christian. The battle is not over, but there is a new resource to fight the battle. That's the difference. That's the change that takes place. And the battle is waged in our members, in our body. Our body becomes the beachhead for that battle to take place. Those are some of the things we've talked about, some of the things Paul has talked about. Now, what do you mean by my members? I, I think it does mean body. It doesn't mean, this is, this is what it doesn't mean. Sometimes it's easier to define what Paul means here than by what he doesn't mean. He does not mean the body is intrinsically evil. 
that, you know, that the spirit is not evil, the body is evil, and so sin is in the body, but the spirit, no, you, you can't dichotomize it like that. It's not that the body is inherently evil, but it is the place where indwelling sin begins to have its beachhead to express itself through our members, through our unredeemed as of yet body. Members like our brain, our mind, our hands, our feet, our mouth, our glands, our sexual organs, all of that. Sin wants to get hold of that and and have a beachhead there. And so when Paul talks about this battle, he's talking about this battle in our yet unredeemed body that we fight and that we battle. Let me, let me share something that actually um, came to me from two different sources as I was working on this, a picture that I, I, uh, I think might be helpful for us. The one I'm going to read to you or reference the most is, is from my son's uh, pastor at College Park in Indianapolis, Mark Brogog. You may begin to see some of the things he's writing and some of the things that, that are coming out. One of the books that he has talked about is... Uh, from the Psalms and, and lamentation, the idea of lament in the Christian's life, which I think would be beneficial for you to read. But here's, here's a picture he gives of this battle, this battle in our mortal members that it talks about in this text, this battle with indwelling sin, how it manifests itself. Try to get the picture of this. These are the things he says about it. There is a reign or a controlling reality that is being contested. And you see that in verse 12. It says, do not let sin reign. So there's a a battle there, a controlling reality that is being contested. And what is that controlling reality if we're in Christ? That our king is Jesus. And there's a a controlling reality that that sin is attempting to try to overthrow as it, Raises its ugly head. There's a challenger. That's, that's sin. There's a challenger and a rebel who wants to take control. Sin. There's a reign that is contested. And there's a challenger who is contesting it. Again, that is sin. There's a specific location for this battle in verse 12. Do not let sin reign in, as we've already talked about, your mortal body. In your mortal body. In, in your flesh in that sense. There are secret agents called desires. This is where it, it, it begins to be helpful, this illustration. There are secret desires behind the lines who work to foment rebellion. Look at verse 12. Do not let sin reign. And if you look a little farther, it says to make, your, make you obey its passions. We have natural and normal desires as, as human beings. And what happens is sin comes in and tries to pervert those natural desires, attempts to take those natural desires and take them directions they ought not to go. That's what sin does. It begins, it begins with desire. It begins with those kinds of issues of what we are desiring. They become secret agents to overthrow the reign of the king. Sin uses them to overthrow it. There's a possibility, according to this text, of incremental surrender. 
when the front in the battle is being lost, verse 12, to make your, you obey its passions. There's, there's a, there is a potential. God wouldn't say and write in the scriptures to not let it happen if there weren't the potential that it could happen and does happen in the life of believers. And then there are weapons or instruments that can be used for the insurrection. And that's where we get down to the nitty gritty. So we get down then to our members. And God can take our members, our mind, our eyes, our ears, our feet, our, our hands, our tongue, maybe the worst, and take our tongue and, and use it as instruments of unrighteousness. That's, that's what happens when we sin. We become instruments of unrighteousness. As I already said, there's one true king over the realm, and he is God, verse 13. But present yourselves to God. That's the remedy. As those who have been brought from death to life. He is our king. Sin rises up to overthrow the king. He uses desires and comes out through our members as he perverts those. And his attempt is to raise insurrection to overthrow the king. But there's a new principle of authority. Constitutional statement, if you will. Others say it that way. A new constitutional statement of truth. Sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. I don't know if that picture helps, but that's really what happens in the life of a believer. It's the way sin attempts to work. Now, look at Paul's admonition in verse 13 here. This is his admonition. We've already read it, but read it again. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. What Paul is doing here is helping us, I think, to know how to fight this, how to resist this, how to push back on this. The first way he does it is to understand the nature of the battle, which I hope that illustration helps us to understand the nature of the battle. That's the battle that ensues. That's the insurrection that tries to rise up within us. And if, if you don't know the way that it rises up within you, then it'll be harder to fight it, harder to spot it when it starts way back there with desires and, and then works its way out through members of our body. The earlier you catch it, the earlier you're aware of it, the better you'll be about fighting it and resisting it. And then the second remedy actually was from a verse that we didn't read this morning, but is important in verse 11. And so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The, the idea of consider, consider all the truth of Romans chapter six that we have talked about thus far, of all what it means to be in Christ, what it means. And, and as we've defined it this morning, it's to be on a trajectory of splendid glory. That's what Romans 6 is for those that are in Christ. And it's because God has saved us, as we've already said, from the penalty of sin. If you are in Christ, your sin will not be held against you. 
You've been rescued. That's what these tables will say to us as we come. I hope this morning we have been rescued from the penalty of sin. But more than that, we've also now have within us by virtue of the Holy Spirit that God gives us a new power to resist sin. That's, that's the gospel. That's, that's part of the gospel. A penalty's gone. Now we have a new power to resist sin, to come against it, to battle it, and one day we'll be free from the very presence of it, but not yet, not now. The battle wages in our members, in the now and not yet of the kingdom. But the the key here, again, is the word consider, consider, consider. Go back again and again and again to those truths. Keep them at the forefront of your mind and of your heart. What is true of you, if you are in Christ, that in fact, there's no penalty, it's gone. And if there's no penalty, you can look deep into your heart and really deal with sin because acknowledging that sin will not condemn you. As we've said earlier in these messages, there. There is no sin that you can successfully defeat, that you can successfully come against in your life unless it is a canceled sin. You don't come at it in a way that says to God, I'm going to come at this sin so God, you will cancel this sin. In other words, I'm going to live against it, fight against it, build up, build up uh, credit so that somehow at some point you'll cancel it. You will never get there. That's what it means. We are not under law anymore. We don't save ourselves, and that is falling back under law. But to not be under law means that that sin is canceled, and therefore it will never be held against me. Now think this morning. Think of what that sin is for you. Where is your besetting sin? Where is the place where if you were going to tally the times you fail, which one would be at the top of the list the most? Think about that sin. That sin. Do you really believe that the penalty of that is canceled? Part of defeating it. Part of defeating it is realizing it won't be held against me and so I can go after it. I can battle hard against it. And there is a power to do that. The gospel says there is a power. So you see, we need the gospel all the time. We need the gospel every day, but we need the full gospel. Not bits and pieces of that gospel, but the the full gospel that the penalty has been taken care of. There's a new power to come against sin, and ultimately because the penalty is no longer there, one day the presence of it will be gone. And we battle in the middle. And we battle more successfully on those grounds, the grounds of the gospel. In fact, you can't battle any other way. There's all kinds of ways that you can define sin. Um, all kinds of ways that you could use to describe it. This morning I go back, in a sense, to what I said earlier about bumping into what gives people life. Back to that illustration of sin. Um, for the unbeliever, the one is in that downward spiral of trajectory They are holding on to something to give them life that can't give them life. And it will just lead them into a deeper and deeper trajectory that is not good. 
because they won't let go of it. The remedy is to let go of it. Let go of what's giving you life. Let go of it. And if they do, the trajectory changes. No matter how far down it's gone, it comes back up, it changes, it goes the other direction. That's what changes it, death to life. Letting go of holding on to something. But really, that's the definition of sin, of holding on to something to give you life. A desire begins to rise up in you, a perverted desire that Satan has taken captive and begins to want you to take the members of your body and act it out in some way, in some form. Maybe it's to, to, to say something you ought not to say, or maybe it's something else. And there's a sense in which to do that gives you a, a fix. It, it does something to you. It, it produces life for a moment, feels good for a moment. Problem is it won't last. So you'll go to other things to give you life. And the, the, the problem is you, you, you hold on to things for life, and that is sin. And the remedy is to let go of those things. And for a Christian, again, I, I used that illustration. We can functionally live there. We can, and that's what we're doing. We're functionally turning to something else to give us life. In that moment of sin, you're thinking, this will give me something that I need that God can't do for me. And so you turn to it. Now, the difference, again, between an unbeliever and a believer is an unbeliever that by very definition never lets go of it, never lets go, never lets go of looking to other things to give them life. For a believer, they, they may for a moment turn there, but then realize, oh, I made a mistake. That's not the place to go. And, and turn back to the God who has saved them. That's why the project trajectory is one of splendid glory. Now, it, it may have ebb and flow, but it's on an upward climb. The ebb and flow is the times when we turn and try to get life out of something that can't give us life. Sin. But for the unbeliever, it's just straight down. It's not ebbing and flowing. It's just going straight the other direction. Unless, unless God opens their eyes to see the true one who can give life. And the text really has that ebb and flow. Read it again in verse 13. Do not present your bodies as instruments to sin for unrighteousness. Don't turn to things to give you life that can't give you life and produce unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Turn to God. Turn to him. Look to him. It's why it's so important that we avail ourselves to the means of grace. It's why it's important that we regularly come to this table to remind us, remind us to consider the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember why Christ died. Remember what he died to accomplish. Remember it. It's why it's good to gather together. It's why it was hard when we we couldn't gather together. It's why it's good to be in the word and to to battle in the word to see the gospel and what Christ has done. To pray, 
to fellowship together with other believers because those are the things that will help us to live lives and to have our bodies be instruments of righteousness. There's no quick fix, no simple answer, but it's availing ourselves to the means of grace and the centrality of the gospel and understanding what is true of us, that we have been redeemed to be specimens of splendid glory. I hope this morning as we come now to the table that that we will remember that. I'd like to go back to the quote again, if I could, as we prepare ourselves to receive these elements. I pray that the hope of that first stanza this morning resonates within you. This table speaks to us of it, reminds us of it, and to the degree to which we've forgotten it, that we will just confess that to God. The degree to which we've forgotten it and turned to other things to try to get a life and life that only God can give us, that we just repent of that. That's what, that's what believers do. When confronted with it and the realization that they've done that, they repent. And God continues them on that trajectory of splendid glory. Definition again of an unbeliever is they, they don't. They don't. They keep trying to find life in places other than God. And that's why their trajectory is so different. We're going to come to the table. Let me read to you this morning the invitation that God gives us. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then it says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup in a worthy manner. What's a worthy manner? Turning away from things that can't give us life that we have maybe fallen into even this past week acknowledging that and turning back to the one who is the only true life giver, God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will prepare us this morning as we come to the table, that you will strengthen us by your grace as we remember, as we remember that it speaks rescue to us, rescue from the penalty rescue from the bondage of sin by putting a new power within us to resist it. And oh God, one day, one day we pray comes soon from the very presence, from the very presence of sin. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.
Amen. This morning, we're preparing the elements for you and uncovering them. And uh, if you have not been here as we've received communion, this is how we will do it this morning. Um, because of COVID, we, we try to have as few touches as possible. And so we are going to invite you to come. We'll dismiss you to come. Um, we need as much as possible everybody to move when we do that, whether you feel like you're going to receive the element or not. We understand um, some may not want to receive it, but at least to move so that we're not crossing one another. Although we also know there may be some who, who would rather be served and just don't feel like they're able with the slanted floor, some of those things to come. We will attempt to, to ask some that we may know are in that camp, or if you are, let the person who is helping to dismiss you know, and we will bring the element to you. That's fine. We understand that. But as you come, and one of the things we are learning in this new way we're doing it is that sometimes those cups were hard to get out, and what we're finding is because they were hard to get out of there, because we had compacted them by putting them on top of each other, we didn't do that this time. It'll be much easier, I think, to get out. And what happened sometimes as we did it is people, because they couldn't get it out, they would just get one cup. There's two cups, and you need both of those cups because in the bottom cup is the bread, and the top cup is the, is the juice. And so we hope that you can get both and hope it's made it easier for that to happen this morning. And so we'd like, as, as ushers dismiss and have you move again, uh, we want you to feel free. If you don't feel like you want to take the element, just, just pass it by. We understand some people may be visiting this morning and have different traditions and do it different ways, and there are all kinds of reasons. There have been many times or a few times in my life that I've just not taken communion, partly being in a setting I didn't understand. Other times, just didn't know if I should. So anyway, I just would beckon you to, to uh, prepare your hearts and come. The ushers are going to help us to do that. dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten then, nailed to the cross of wood. This the power of the cross Christ became sin for us Took the blame Bore the wrath We stand forgiven at the cross To 
see the pain written on your face bearing the awesome weight of sin every bitter thought every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow this the power of the cross christ became sin for us took the blame for the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross now the daylight flees now the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head curtain torn in two the dead are raised to life finish the victory cry this the power of the cross Christ became sin for us took the blame bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross oh to see my name written in the wounds for through your suffering I am free death is crushed to death life is mine to live one through your selfless love this the power of the cross son of God slain for us what a love what a cost we stand forgiven at the cross I hope this morning as you partake of these elements in just a moment that they beckon rescue to you rescue but not just rescue in a sense rescue that puts you on a trajectory of splendid glory what a God we have taste and see that he is good you may receive the elements this morning
Let's pray. Scripture says that maybe for a good man someone might dare to die. But Christ died. For men of splendid horror, abject horror, sinners, while we were still sinning, while we were still on a downward trajectory of destruction, you rescued us, Lord. To God be the glory. And all the people said, Amen. Go on God's peace.